0: What are y'all doing today? Good. Craig, can you grab that table for me? Awesome. Well, um, open your Bibles if you brought them with you to church, and turn to Luke chapter 2. We also have Bibles in the seat back in front of you, and it'll be on screen. Um, I didn't tell you this before, Mona, but could you turn the slides for me? Um, Call me old-fashioned, but I like to just read the passage I'm preaching from with a Bible in hand. Um, it's almost a rare sight these days in our, in our digital age, but I just I like it. So if you'll, yeah, if you'll just change those for me, let's jump in. Turn to Luke chapter two, verse uh, forty-one, and we're going to be looking at this story, the lone story of Jesus as a boy that we have in the Bible. So Luke two, verse forty-one begins. Now, his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the feast of Passover when he was 12 years old, they went up according to custom. When the feast was ended, as they were returning, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. His parents didn't know it, but supposing him to be in the group, they went a day's journey, but then began to search for him among their relatives and acquaintances. And when they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem, searching for him. After three days, they found him in the temple, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. his mother treasured up all these things in her heart. And Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. I was thinking about this passage. I feel like uh, if Jordan got worried sick looking for me, I'd probably respond something like, why were you looking for me? Did you not know I must be at fullness? (laughs) It's basically my life. But for most people, if they're missing, they're probably not at church. Um in this story, let me just recap a little bit of it for us. Mary and Joseph are, are looking for Jesus, and they are just worried sick. Um, the temple, which is the safest place Jesus could be, is the last place they look. And like any anxious parent, they're kind of assuming maybe the worst-case scenario of what could have happened to their 12-year-old son. They're combing the streets, going to the marketplaces, checking the gates of the city to see if Jesus has maybe been been taken or whatever it might be, finally the thought occurs to them, do you think our son might be at the temple? So they go look for him there. Um, And basically they seem to kind of be paralyzed by fear for a few days until they finally realize he's actually at the temple. And it's as though they kind of forget who they're looking for. Uh, A point that Jesus, the young Jesus, kind of reminds his parents of when he says, why were you looking for me? Did you not know I'd be at my father's house and and the inclination of course there being where else would I be than in the temple uh, verse forty three in the text actually says that um, Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem, which means he probably wasn't really left I mean Jesus kind of has his own plans in this story um, and That seems to be clear given the fact that he makes no attempt to catch up with his parents. I mean, it's not like there's lots of roads back to Nazareth. There's just two. One goes through Samaria, which no Jews took, and the other goes around the River Jordan to dodge Samaria. And so he doesn't make any attempt to catch up with them. But Jesus decides to take full advantage of the life of the temple, to stay connected to congregational worship, to hear the teaching of the scriptures by the experts in Jerusalem and sit at their feet. Um, and he's drawn to this. He can't leave it, the story seems to show us. Um, you know, he must have realized that at some point his parents were going to come back for him. Um, but even Jesus is surprised that the thought didn't occur to them immediately. Oh, our, our boy Jesus, he's got to be at the temple, Right? Um, Mark Strauss says this: <clears throat> Luke includes this story, not to fill in the details for the curious readers, but to reveal Jesus's real human growth, both spiritual and physical. And The idea here is, is that there were actually lots of stories, kind of legends um, of the boy Jesus doing miraculous things, saying really wise stuff, and blowing away adults with his wisdom. And these stories circulated kind of in the apocryphal stories of the church for centuries. But only one story actually makes it into the Bible, and that's this one, of Jesus as a boy in the temple. And what what Mark Strauss is pointing out, though, is that the story doesn't exist just to satisfy the curiosities of people desperate to know what Jesus could have been like as a kid. Right? It's much deeper than that. It's not just something to... Satisfy your curiosities. This is to make a very clear point in Luke's gospel. That Jesus grew. He grew in stature, which is pretty easy to understand. But he also grew in wisdom. He grew in favor with God. He grew spiritually. Which is a mystery all its own, given the fact that he's also fully God, right? He's fully God and fully man. So... We find Jesus in this scene, um, and he is, you know, asking questions. He's um, submissive. He's submissive to the, the rabbis sitting at their feet, taking the posture of a disciple. He's submissive to the father's voice, calling him to the temple, even though his parents have left. And at the end of the story, he's submissive to Mary and Joseph to go home. So some of the things that I just kind of pulled out from the story here of what Luke wants you to know about Jesus' development in in the years between his birth, which Luke gives us lots of details on, and the beginning of Jesus' public ministry, is some of the things in this story, which is that at one level, he had appreciation for sacred spaces, right? Namely, the temple in this scene. Gathering with God's people for corporate worship. Let me just pause for a a second on on this. You know, it says that uh, every year, Uh, Mary and Joseph went up to celebrate the Feast of of Passover, according to custom. Um, I mean, Jesus grew up in a very devout family. And this is just one of the festivals that they attended, probably. Um, And then when they're done, Jesus doesn't want to go. I mean, like, we're we're in a a situation right now where it's like, I bet there are some kids who want to be at church when the parents don't want to. (laughs) Um, And that's this, I mean, Jesus is wanting to stay connected to the life of the corporate gathering. And by the way, this is not something Jesus just outgrew um, as he got older. In chapter 4, it says that he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, every Sabbath day, as was his custom. Um, Which pushes back, there's like this myth out there um, that Jesus was just this rogue, itinerant minister with this anti-authoritarian chip on his shoulder, who just couldn't stand the religious establishment and was just trying to burn it down. Which is not true. Jesus was a church-going man. He was at the synagogue every Sabbath. He didn't want to leave the temple. His parents had to drag him out, basically, right, as a kid. Um, And I think that kind of image of Jesus as this person who was just trying to, had all this, um, (laughs) I don't know, just wanted to tear down the religious system, I think that appeals to people who have that same angsty chip, angsty anti-authoritarian chip on them. And so I get it, I get it. But unfortunately, it's not the Jesus in the Gospels. Um, another thing we find is that he has a love for the scriptures, right? An acquisitive and sharp mind, a submissive heart. He's growing in wisdom, growing with, uh, in favor with God, in favor with people. Um, and then we find in um, this, the verses right before this um, that kind of come at the end of Jesus being um, dedicated the temple. It says, When they had performed, that's Mary and Joseph, everything according to the law of the Lord, that's when Jesus was dedicated as a baby, they returned to Galilee, to their own town, Nazareth. And the child grew and became strong, filled with wisdom, and the favor of God was upon him. And. Th- Wisdom and favor seem to be the, the terms that Luke really wants us to catch with the development of Jesus in these years, and because he, he comes to it again. At the end, now 12 years later, at the end of this scene, as Jesus is a boy, it says Jesus increased in wisdom, in his stature, and in favor with God. The wisdom that Jesus gained, um, you know, there's, there's a kind of wisdom that we talk about that is true, which is... Wisdom just simply comes by life experience. The more experiences you go through in life, the more you filter that and can apply that knowledge to life, right? Um, on that note, we could think of things like this. These are observations on life and work written anonymously. Uh, number one, nothing is foolproof to a talented fool. <laughs> if you live on you can kind of figure that one out by high school. You don't... You don't need 50 years on that one, but. um, Number two, the early bird may get the worm, but the second mouse gets the cheese. Sometimes you win if someone else takes the fall for you. That's just, that's just true. Um, Number two, borrow money from a pessimist. They don't expect it back. Fourth, if at first you don't succeed, destroy all evidence you tried. I know some of you work in jobs where, like, this is your M.O. Like, if anyone finds out you screwed up, just erase the evidence and move on. Number five, experience is something you don't get until just after you need it. Six, the sooner you fall behind, the more time you have to catch up. And seventh, if at first you don't succeed, then skydiving is not for you. So these are kind of like wisdom nuggets, if you could call them that, um, that we just gain by life experience. You know, the wisdom that Jesus is coming into in this story and in these years, it's, it's a deeper wisdom than one that's simply gained by experiencing the world. Um, he, in this scene, in the temple as a boy, is growing in this wisdom around the scriptures and in discerning the purposes of God. That's what we're to see in this story. Um, in, in, in this scene of the young Jesus at the temple, he's, he's there, he's sitting at the feet of the experts of the law, and he's drinking in their teachings on the scriptures. And he's sitting before them, the rabbis, who themselves are always standing, and, and by doing so, he's taking the posture of a disciple, which on its own is just remarkable, given the fact that he is the son of God. He's hungry to learn, listening to the scriptures taught, and asking questions. Do you think we could have that door closed? I don't know if that's too much to ask, um, if, if only for my own concentration. Um, he's just drinking in this scene. And rabbis, in this often taught in this question and format type setting, and so he's, you know, the rabbis are fielding questions to the audience, and Jesus is answering. And everyone's just blown away at his answers to the rabbi's questions. His understanding of the Old Testament, right, is what that would be. So this story makes clear that whatever's entailed in Jesus' growth and wisdom, it's not to be disconnected from a profound knowledge of Scripture, Right? and in discerning God's purpose and calling on his own life. And the fact that Luke 2.52 says that he also grew in favor with God means that Jesus wasn't just reading the Bible and even having great insight on the Bible. He was living the Bible, right? He grew in favor with God. Wisdom has to do, as you probably know, wisdom has to do with applied knowledge, right? And so his life was one marked by wisdom, as was his death. The Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter uh, 1 declares that Jesus has become for us wisdom from God. The legacy of his life and death was one of wisdom. It was foolishness to the Greeks, weakness to the Jews. The, the wisdom and the power of the cross was lost on the world, the unbelieving world. I mean, the, the wisdom of self giving love is otherworldly in many ways. So let's come back to this story again. Uh, verse 48 says this. And when his parents saw him, they were astonished. His mother said to him, Son, why have you treated us so? Behold, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. Mm, got angry. And, when he, and he said to them, Why are you looking for me? Did you not know? That I must be in my father's house? I mean, Jesus is surprised that his parents didn't come straight to the temple. These right here are the first words that Jesus speaks in the gospel of Luke. And from the moment Jesus begins speaking in Luke's gospel, we are presented with a Jesus who's living consciously with his identity as the Son of God. And the phrase here, interestingly, I didn't know this until preparing for this sermon, um, the, the Greek phrase is literally, did you not know I would be in thee of my father? It's missing the word house. And so this is an expression that you would find in just in Greek uh, daily speech, where you would say, I, I'll use, uh, where's somebody, I'll, I'll use Bill as an example, um, You know, I could say, did you not know I would be in the of Bill? And you could, based on context, supply a word, right? And oftentimes, it's well documented that this could be used to refer to someone's house or dwelling place. Um, But at the same time, this phrase could also be used to speak about someone's affairs or someone's business. So I could say, did you not know I would be about Bill's? And that You would supply the word if the context asked for it be about Bill's business, right? Um, And in some ways, we have a very similar phrase in English, right? If I said, hey, babe, I'll be over at Bill's, I mean I'll be over at Bill's house, right? Um, So it's not even that far from an English phrase we have. Um, But (laughs) we should say this, you know, given the fact that Mary and Joseph are looking for their son, and the temple is the house of God, The primary meaning is, and this is what most translations do, is they supply the word house there, right? Um, That Jesus is in the house of God and the temple, and he's saying, did you not know I'd be at my father's house? That's got to be the primary meaning. But there could be a double meaning here. That Jesus is also saying, didn't you know I would be about my father's business? Responding to the call. And I I just, my theology of scripture, I'm just going to play my cards a little bit, is that yes, I think the primary meaning is house, but I think the Holy Spirit's brilliant enough to maybe intend a double meaning, which might in fact be why in the very next verse it says that Mary and Joseph don't understand the saying that Jesus gives them. They're even confused about exactly what Jesus is saying. Um, So we come to verse 48, and Mary says, your father, your father and I have been distressed, um, which shows that even though Mary was, you know, Jesus was conceived in Mary by the Holy Spirit, she and Joseph see Jesus as Joseph's son, right? They view him as, as Joseph's son. Now, Jesus' attentiveness to his father's business has created all this turmoil in his parents to the point where, I mean, I think if this story was not about Jesus, that we'd all say something in the effect of, like, wow, what an insensitive young man to put His parents through this, right? They probably hesitate because it is Jesus, (laughs) Um, but Jesus is appealing to a higher authority in this story, right? Um, And again, this is the first time in the narrative that Jesus declares what he must do. Did you not know? I must be in my father's house. I must be in my father's house. Already by the age of twelve, Jesus is living with a sense of calling. I must. Be in my father's house. And it's clear that he's not talking about his father Joseph's house back in Nazareth. I must be about my father's business. And it's clear he's not talking about the family carpentry business that Joseph ran, that Jesus was to inherit. According to Jewish tradition, um, Jewish boys were accountable, morally responsible, to fulfill the law at the age of 13. Jesus is 12. In this story. And we find him here drinking in the wisdom, discussing God's law with the experts, and deeply motivated by doing his father's will. And the connotation here seems to be that even before it was normally required of boys, he's concerned with what does God want? What is God's will? What is God's law? What is my father's desire for me? Um, let me transition just for a second. A few uh, months ago, Adeline had a, uh, her four in October. Adeline turned four. I'm glad she's not in, in the um, sanctuary for this. Oh, she is? Okay. I got permission. <laughs> you are hiding. Um, but I, I, did, I did get permission. I'm not sure she, if she knew what she agreed to. But all that to say, Um, uh, she had by request a unicorn birthday party, which was a blast. And, um, we, uh, among the gifts, we got a a unicorn that's twice her size, maybe three times her size. Thank you, Aunt Gina. We're still not sure what room in the house this unicorn belongs to. It, it, it fits nowhere, (laughs) but it's like this big, literally this unicorn. Um, and uh, we, I, I fly her around the house on it. Um, and all that to say, a few days after the party, we were playing with unicorns because she got like five unicorns, and we had a family of unicorns, and uh, me and her were playing with them, and uh, and I picked up one of the unicorns, and, and in my best like horse voice, I went, nee! and she looks at me and just goes, no, that's not what horses say. Um, and I was like, no, 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 that's that's kind of like what horses say. She goes, no, horses say nay. And I was like, oh, okay, well, it's true. Like, horses do say nay, but like kind of, but real horses sound a little bit more like what Daddy said. And she goes, no, Aaliyah said that horses say nay. If you don't know Aaliyah's Adeline's cousin. And so I said, no, no, Adeline, Aaliyah's, Aaliyah's wrong. The horses say more like what Daddy said. And she goes, No. Horses say nay, Aaliyah told me. And so I'm in this moment of like, okay, um, I need some higher authority to appeal to, to adjudicate between me and my daughter and her cousin. So I pull up YouTube, and I type in horse noises. And after 15 seconds of playing horse noises for Adeline, I can see the look on her face begin to change, and she understands that perhaps Daddy's right. About this, and I say, See, Adeline, horses sound more like what daddy said. I can see the wheels turning, and she goes, But we're playing with unicorns. (laughs) So, this is a a crude transition, but from a young age, the voice of his father was the weightiest voice in Jesus' life, even above his earthly father. And we find Jesus feeling misunderstood by his parents, by Mary and Joseph. A point that Luke actually makes explicit in verse 50, that they don't understand the saying that he says to them. Fast forward about 20 years from this day in the temple, Mary and her sons, which she has later, um, come to see Jesus one day. Jesus is, it seems, preaching in a house And the crowd's so thick that Mary and her sons can't get to Jesus. And, you know, I can just imagine, um, he's our brother, let us through, we want to see him. He's my son, I want to see my son. And I can't get through. Finally, that word kind of trickles through the crowd until someone closer to Jesus says, Jesus, your mother and sons are outside um, desiring to see you. Uh, Your mother and your brothers are outside desiring to see you. And at this point, you'd expect Jesus to say something like, okay, everyone, go ahead and go home for the day, come back tomorrow, let me spend the evening with my family, right? Or at least, okay, let's, let's make some space, let them in, come on, let's, let's, let's let them get through, right? Like, at, at the very least, you'd expect that, right? Instead, Jesus says, my mother and my brothers are those who hear the word of God and do it. And then the story ends. And then Luke moves on to Jesus, the story of Jesus calming the sea. I mean, it is abrupt, the ending of that story. That's where it ends in Luke 8, 21. Unable to get through the crowd, Mary and her sons are still outside the house. And then Luke just closes the story. At a narrative level, Luke is trying to call his readers to grapple with the abruptness of this scene that closes exactly where it begins. I'll tell you who my mom is. My mom's the person who hears God's word and does it. I'll tell you who my brothers are. My brothers are people who hear God's word and does it. I'll tell you who my father is, the one who inhabits this temple I must be about his business. He's my father. I mean, the way Jesus views family is remarkable. That transcends, right? So he tells the crowd, those who hear the words of God, those who posture themselves before God's word, much like Jesus did as a boy, sitting at the feet of the rabbis, drinking in the word of God, Um. He tells the crowd that if you hear God's word and, and do it, I, I must be about my father's business. I must be in the place where my father dwells and lives. Those are the kinds of people I call family, Jesus says. And the story, that story from Luke 8, it strikes a resonant theme, I think, of the story 20 years earlier of Jesus as a boy in the temple. Um, and it says that even the holy family Joseph, Mary, and Jesus, that family that's still represented in nativities in your living rooms, probably, doesn't have some advantage you don't have. They don't have some edge or some head start that you don't have or anyone else doesn't have. Verse 20 in that story says this, and it was told him, See if I can get it to come back. Uh, your mother and your brothers are standing outside, desiring to see you. That phrase, "desiring to see you," is really striking to me, especially because um, we, the text makes it clear that, like, they want to see their son, they want to see their brother, and yet the story ends with them outside the house, not getting to see Jesus, and it underscores something pretty uncomfortable. That Jesus isn't necessarily moved by my desire to see him. If that sounds a little abrupt. Let me give us another story to see that. John 20, 20, I mean 12, 20 through 22 says, Now among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. So these came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew. Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. So you can just see Andrew and Philip are going, this is it. This is the birth of Jesus Ministries International. We're going global. The Greeks want to see you now. When do we show them in, right? Like this is a, a, probably a non, non-conversation, right? Let's just, when, 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 when do we want to see them? And Jesus doesn't even respond to their request It's not because he doesn't care about the Greeks. Twelve verses later, Jesus will say, if I be lifted up from the earth, I will draw all peoples to myself. So the text leaves no room for a Jesus that doesn't care about the Greeks. That's not the point. Jesus decides, I'm not going to talk about just the fact that people want to see me. Let me tell you what I'm getting at. And he talks about his impending death in this cryptic language about a seed not living unless it dies. And they're like, why are we talking about this? And then Jesus, in verse 26, a few verses down, says, If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. The beautiful thing about serving Jesus, which is basically... Jesus' answer to this question is that you can't do it from a distance. If you serve Jesus, that means you follow Jesus. So you go hand in hand. The only way to serve him is to go where he's going. If you want to know where my servant is, she's wherever I am. Whatever I'm up to. If you want to know where my servant is, he's where I am. Jesus says, Doug Webster says this, Jesus isn't looking for admirers. He's looking for followers. And I think this is the temptation within cultural Christianity, right? It's so easy to admire Jesus, right? It's so easy to be impressed by Jesus. Lots of people are impressed by Jesus. Tons of people, even out in the culture. But notice the wording here in this verse. It's not where my servants are, I'll go there. It's where I am, there my servants will be also. My servants are going to be where I'm at, doing the things I'm up to, right? In a similar story in Luke 23 with Pilate, when Jesus is being interrogated, it says, when Herod saw, I'm oh, sorry, with Herod, when Herod saw Jesus, he was very glad, for he'd long desired to see him because he'd heard about him. And he was hoping to see some sign done by him. So he questioned him at some length, but he made no answer. I wonder how many times over the centuries people have desired to see Jesus in much the same way Herod desired to see Jesus. Fascinated by the stories around this man, the person, the people touched by the life of Christ, but with no serious inclination to serve him, with no serious desire to follow him and commit themselves to the affairs of Christ, the business of his father, right? Um, And Jesus just gives Herod the silent treatment, right? Um, I don't have anything to say to you, Herod. Now, don't get me wrong. I think a pure-hearted desire to see Jesus is a beautiful thing, right? I mean, as a church, let's echo the words of the Greeks who said we desire to see Jesus, right? But let's pair that desire to see Jesus with the commitment to follow him, to be found where our master is found. Let's pair that commitment, that desire to see Jesus with a a devotional aspect of saying, I want to hear the word of God and do it. That's being family with Jesus. Now, Let's not lose that, but let's also not lose the fact that Luke makes it clear there's always grace for the wayward daughter. There's always a robe, a ring, and a fatted calf awaiting the wayward son. And the parable of the prodigal son, which is unique to Luke, and I know we'll get to that in this series this this spring, is that even for those who've really lost any deserving right to be in the father's house, there's a way back. There's a way back. And the beauty of the gospel is that even when we wander and journey into the far country there's one who can always say why were you looking for me did you not know I'd be in my father's house dwelling where my father dwells and when the affairs and the business of the world dominates you there's always one who said I must be about my father's business we're saved because of the Incarnate God born in Bethlehem, who went to the temple as a boy, and absorbed the law. We're saved because of that life. By the way, it was critical that Jesus absorb the law. It's critical that he understand it. You know, Jesus' mission wasn't just to come and die. His mission was first to come and live and to live well, right? So that he could be a perfect sacrifice on the cross. The apostle Paul in Galatians 4, 4 through 5 says, In the fullness of time, God sent a son born of a woman born under law to redeem those under law that they might receive adoption as sons. It was critical that Jesus devour the Torah, It was critical that he sit at the feet of the rabbis, absorb God's laws, God's commands, God's demand upon humanity, know it really well so he could live it perfectly, right? I mean, it's critical. And that's what we see in the story of Jesus as a boy. He's learning the scriptures, absorbing and assimilating God's demand on you, on me, on humanity, living it perfectly so he could redeem those under law. And then re-gift you the call to be the kind of family he wants. Which is people who hear the word of God and do it. Amen. Let me pray for us as we close. Lord, thank you for this scene. The one scene we have of you as a boy, Jesus, in the temple. And I ask, Lord, that it would be instructive to us. That you would give us an an inquisitive mind. A submissive heart, would you grow us in wisdom? Would you grow us in favor with you? Would you give us a love for the scriptures, a love for gathering with your people? God, would you just draw us? God may it be said that we never stopped growing. There's nothing <laughs> There's nothing more beautiful than a baby, and there's nothing more repulsive than a 40-year-old baby. Would you grow us, Lord? you mature us, and we we'll never stop growing in wisdom and a favor with you, but also knowing, Jesus, that where we will fail, you always succeeded, and we anchor our hope in that, Jesus. We love you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.